0: Hello welcome back. You have been listening to pretty much the 80s fall. Um and obviously still with us we've got John Henderson. Hey John. Hey Bliss. Hello John Fisher. Hi. And I'm gonna go straight over to Nick. Um Nick. Nick. Bricks is here, right? This is Bricks. Well, sort of. Yeah.
1: She she this This is the first album that Bricks appears on, but I don't think it's necessarily the first Album, you would say the, the Bricks era, where she had a very strong influence on the band. If anything, it was just um, you know she was she was in a relationship with Mark, and he brought her into the studio, and she just sort of started playing on some stuff, and she contributed to some songs, and it was kind of that was it. She was it It wasn't any kind of like you know big introduction or anything to the band. They were just like, oh, okay, she's in the band now.
0: So is this you know? some sort? Is this sort of a, a a bridge album into what would be referred to to say that the Bricks I mean, period.
1: You, you could say that if, you, if you're talking about Fall in terms of the Bricks era this is the bridge album into that definitely. I mean there's um, a song uh, Hotel Blowdell that she sings sings on um, and she's also in the backing vocals on Eat Yourself Fitter which is a really weird song. You know I mean I, I think uh, I mean I, I like I love that it exists but I struggle with it a bit when I'm listening to the album I think because once I get past that I enjoy it a lot more. Why? Um, I, I guess the rest of the album after that is kind of more in the zone of the classic fall sound. And, and besides the addition of bricks, you're still kind of looking at the, the classic fall lineup. So you've still got the double drummers of Carl and, and Paul Hanley, uh, Steve Hanley on bass, and Craig Scanlon on guitars. I mean, this is, you know, core mid 80s fall.
0: And I think it sounds great. And, and so there's no big shift musically yet? I mean, Not really. Okay, so it's more of a bit of a continuation, um but obviously by this point, they know that it's not their last album um uh, and they're aware that they're a, they're a band moving forward. Is Riley still with them no
1: no he well, he was gone during during the recording of room to Live i think um so Mark Riley's gone, and I often wonder like you know what the follow sounded like if there'd been a way that Mark Riley could have stayed with them because you know he was obviously such a strong member of the band and part of the sound it' have been interesting to how they could have developed the thing is. is Unless Mark E. Smith was in control of the ego, I don't know that he could quite work with it. You know? I mean, I guess that's why it was interesting the effect that Bricks had on the band, because he was another very strong personality in the band that, to some degree, was almost on a sort of equal terms with Mark.
0: And So how do we think Mark e. Smith, as a person, dealt with other egos coming into what was essentially his band? Uh, John, John Henderson, I mean, what do, you, what do you think in terms of how Mark was dealing with... Bigger egos uh, and and the conflict in the studio therein. I don't really think.
2: Well, first of all, I, I agree with Nick that this isn't really a Bricks album at all. I think she shows up on a couple of tracks. Mark had a habit of uh, all of his partners doing that at one point or another. Even yeah. Kate Carroll, back in the early days, shows up on on the odd bit here and there. And I think that that's pretty much what happened. She sang on a couple of songs. I think that this is a band that realized how horrific Room to Live turned out and decided they needed to do something better. Again, here they're back on Rough Trade after Camera, so it's a new label. Uh, they had some funding. Rough Trade was doing really well at this point. Um, I think this is around the same time that Smith's debut came out, mm-hmm. and Rough Trade was moving towards a more kind of college rock uh, sound in general, in terms of what they son- sounded like, uh, signed rather. and. Um, That said, I think it's a much better record than Room to Live, but I kind of think you could group those two records together and pick the best songs and they'd all be on Perverted by Language, but I think that it's still not really that great of a record.
0: That's my opinion. So we're sort of moving from early, so there's Early Fall, which has a lot of fans, and then there's there's future periods of Fall which have lots of fans and lots of uh, standard uh, flag-waving. Uh, I I guess, and these are sort of in-between bits. Fliss?
3: Yeah, I I have this album, actually, but I really don't listen to it very much. Um, But at the time when I first heard it, I did think, oh, maybe this is another near masterpiece after Room to Live I couldn't even... I'd never really listened to. It's not. But they were touring so much at this time, right? They were Mm. just constantly touring. And it made me think of... um, around this time or you know the full the fall fans and how everyone is it's like following um it's like following a football team isn't it but being really into that football team and sometimes there's highs and sometimes there's lows and you go to those gigs you go to the games and you never know what you're going to expect and I guess people kind of take it and take it in their stride don't they there's not not everything's going to be great Not everything's going to be a hit. So, so, what was,
0: I mean, so what was, as far as we're aware, the live experience like with the fall? It's not something we've sort of touched upon yet. Was it a chaotic uh, dumpster fire or, or was it just... John, when did you case? first
1: see them? I'm mean, assuming you, you saw the fall around that time. What when, when, when was the earliest time you saw the fall?
2: Probably kind of around this time, uh, in, in essence. I'm trying to remember. Um, I actually met them in 1980 when I was 15 outside the show that became um, a part of America therein, hoping that I could lag my way in and, and I failed. Um, but I, I had a really nice chat with Mark Riley then. This, They were um, already at the point where they were doing pretty much just the last album and half of the album before that. And uh really uh, you know, good band live, you know, when I ever saw them. Uh, I know that, like any band, they had their bad shows, but at this point, they were still really solid. And and I actually should mention that Camera had really bad distribution, and they did collapse around this time. So, when Rough Trade picked them up with really great distribution, it seemed like the fall were back. And that's mostly because they took out lots of adverts uh, in the weekly papers. The record was easy to find, even in America, where it didn't come out. Um, And so, it gave people the false feeling, I believe, that this was a return to form. I don't think that today
0: it quite has the same cachet that it did back then. Okay. Um, and you said that like, this was roughly around the same time that the, the Smiths' first album was. So obviously in Manchester, this must have been the, the golden days, John Fisher. Well, apparently, yeah. I was probably listening to Howard Jones though in
3: 1983. The um, there a the is a name I have
0: totally forgotten about. <laughs>
3: <laughs> How could you?
0: Um, okay, so if this wasn't necessarily a seminal album, and but we are moving into um, the four, getting a, a second sound that moves into the wonderful and frightening world of *Phyllis*. Um, um, my notes for this were: Oh, David Getz from *The Wedding Present* must have been listening to this album an awful lot because I wow. can still start hearing *The Wedding Present*. David
3: Gedge actually ripped off the an Night and Girls Riff, so he <laughs> 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 he definitely yeah heard a lot of that um you know scratchy guitar and yeah. they, they went off in that tangent. Um but yeah I think this is a really smart record. It's fair read. It's poppy, bricks is in with those pop hits but um it's also really interesting, it has loads of layers and it Steve Hanley is the anchor. Well, in general, but definitely on this record from
0: me. And um, why Why do you think... I mean, did he get... Was he given more responsibility or was he just coming to his four as a musician?
3: I don't know. I just think it's really bass-driven. Oh, a lot of... All of the songs are, really, with the fall in general. But this one, I just think it it's a standout. It's more stand, standout. But, yeah, it's a very bouncy record. And I was... Really, into it from the first three tracks, I was totally there. I think it kind of it goes off a bit in the middle. um, I don't like albums at all. I've said that on my um intro um it loses it a bit, but then it comes back again um yeah, and I'm sure what did, it got in the chart. I think hex was the first album actually of to get in the charts, wasn't it and then but this got higher um. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um. How
0: how had they done? How were they doing? Just generally in terms of success at this point? Um. mean, um, maybe John Henderson you, Well, maybe you, you'll know better. Um. Was Was there a level of success, or were they just a a fans band, band at that point?
2: I think they had been a fan fans band, and I think that this was the point at which someone decided that they could be a success, and uh, this was easily the the largest recording budget that they. Ever And you can tell from listening to it. Um, A lot of it is really constructed, whereas something I really love like Slate's, I think, was just jammed out over time. But this, they put the pieces together. Bricks clearly had a big influence on the band's direction. Uh, Fliss is entirely right about Steve Hanley's bass playing, kind of holding the whole thing together. And I think that that for the next many albums, uh, that was the case. I'm, I'm not sure it's as successful in terms of songwriting as it could have been even the lyrics tend to be a little novelty uh isn't Disney Stream debased on this mm-hmm. that's, yes. that's you know about somebody being deheaded on a disney ride um, and uh you know it's a little it's a simplistic version of the fall i think it, it it's certainly where most people who are fall fans started hitching a ride this and the next record
0: and, and they've got a bit It's even it like sounds a little bit rockabilly on what was it 2x4
3: I think it's really yeah. gothic. This is this where you were going to oh. talk about your gothic.
0: Um, my entire yeah the, next, right. the these these few albums were when I start started to notice the sort of well eighties UK goth Yeah, in.
3: they have that Gavin Friday fella kind of yeah, yeah. squealing it's and. and on with
1: that. That's I, I have to admit I, I was ne- I, I was never a fan of the Gavin Friday vocals on this album. It took me a while to to get to grips <laughs> with it. Um. I mean,
3: it is strange and. Uh, I think it quite works, but I don't really know his stuff anyway. So, but it definitely is gothic, oh. and obviously the land starts off with this like culty chant. I mean, I know Mark thought he he was really into the occult and stuff like that, isn't he? So, but I, I
1: remember going and sorry,
3: go on.
2: I think that Fliss makes a really interesting point, and I think that it's true. This is the point at which previously really underground bands. Started to taste that there might be some success down the road, and also this was the point where what originally started as punk fashion in terms of clothing and looks started entering the mainstream, like like goth did. And Bricks, who, if I'm not mistaken, has her own clothing store in London now, mm-hmm. uh, and was you know always a very fashionable person. She's a Chicago girl, like like not a girl, but she's a Chicago person like me, and. But she always had a really great fashion sense, and fans started dressing better, and I think she really helped push the look kind of of, of that stuff. And I mean,
1: even Marky Smith started dressing better around this time. What's that? I think even Marquis Smith started dressing better around this time. There's a brief window where you could see Bricks had an influence on how he dressed.
2: I think Bricks started dressing Marquis Smith better. Really. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Basically. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I mean, in terms of like. A, of that, I definitely was as I was doing all the research my research for this, I was noticing that Marky e. Smith started looking a little bit more stylized and a little bit more like a it's like amazing. a rock star or a pop star, like as a star. And then oddly, I opened a news story about the making of the new Batman movie, and I realized that Robert Pattinson now looks like Marky e. Smith. Really? If you don't see it, go and have a look at what Rob <laughs> R. R-, R- Pat's looks like now and think he could play Marquis e. Smith in the next movie. The oh, next movie. The next movie. But is it the one I missed? Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> it's the one I made. Okay. Wasn't, wasn't, he,
2: wasn't there a Marky e. Smith character in the 24-Hour Party People?
1: Well,
0: Marky e. Smith is in
1: 24-Hour Party People. Oh, is he? Okay. I don't know if he's he as himself. I think he's just a random bloke in a queue oh, outside okay. a gig. Uh, J- Jonathan, do you know that? Yeah, no, I didn't know that, I don't think. That yeah, mean that I, I, just was, yeah, I don't remember seeing anyone actually play Marky e. Smith. I mean, obviously, oh. I think a lot of full fans would like to see.
0: You heard it, it here was. first. Robert Patterson. that's going to Okay. Hurt. I mean, if, if it ever happens, just come back to this pod listener and go, oh, my God, that guy was totally right. How's, um, how's his Manchester accent? Probably, he's English,
3: right? I think Fr- you need to do a separate Robert Patterson podcast <laughs> <laughs> all yeah. by yourself.
0: Just, just <laughs> on his own. I've got a Twilight, he was in Twilight, right? I've got a Twilight yes. offshoot yeah. podcast, um, temporary <laughs> Twilight 10, yeah phantoms. No, um, Anyway, <laughs> by this point, as this was my first journey through the fall, um, I was quite enjoying myself. I went into this with a lot of reticence, um, due to just some general antipathy towards um, who I perceived Marquis Marky e. Smith as a person, purely from a distance. As brief aside, and it's going to get covered in future episodes. Um, I knew Marquis e. Smith as a character. And as the guy that pronounced words, ah, at the end, ah. But I didn't really know anything about the music. Um, Then, and we definitely cover this in a few episodes time, when John Peel died, there was a Newsnight Newsnight episode that sort of enraged me at the time. And so I just cast the fall aside. I've been pleasantly surprised. Um, It took me a few records. The first few records, I tried to pretend I was listening to someone else. Um, and as it's gone on I'm like, actually this is pretty good I've quite enjoyed yeah, it keep going, keep going <laughs> um, now this is pretty good and I've quite, enjoy- quite enjoyed it um, and I can see myself going back not necessarily to full albums but particularly the Bricks period which we're going to get to like, pretty much immediately there's a lot in there that I genuinely like um, even to the point that I don't necessarily dislike the persona of Marquis e. Smith as much. Um, I guess, and I've, again, this is maybe how media has skewed things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've always perceived Markie Smith, particularly in his later years, to come across as a bit of a bully. Rightly or wrongly, it seemed that he was just a bit of an egotistical bully. Now, like I said, this could be how he was portrayed or the persona, because I didn't really know his stuff. And I never gravitated, gravitated towards people like that in general in my life. So I've been pleasantly surprised by this music uh, as we've been going forward. But we are now moving into a period that I genuinely will genuinely like, uh, which is late '80s, and then moving into the '90s, the Brits period. Um, as a link in the can episode, I had some major issues with quite a lot of can, uh, and I swore a lot. Um, And we're moving on to an album that does have I Am Damo Suzuki, uh, which did give me flashbacks a little bit. Uh, Jonathan, you've got late 80s 4. Last time you were on the pod, you had 90s Bowie, and I felt a bit bad about that, but uh, but you seemed to really enjoy it. How is late 80s (laughs) 4 for you? Yeah, this was I suppose this is my entry point into the 4 at the time. I think, actually, This Nations was probably the first fall album i heard I think. um and it would have been in 88 i reckon and i was like 13. And i used to read through my sister's records and she had loads of fall records and stuff like that so fall were one of the first bands i got into through through that and yeah, this and, nation. and this album um so what, 85 um and we're properly moving forward into the second phase, right? Yeah, I think you can really tell the the real difference in sound immediately from this one. I guess you can hear it um, in Wonderful and Frightening as well. But it does sound like a whole new beast. But it's, it's John Leckie again, isn't it? And he did produce the last album as well. But I think his production on this one in particular is really good. You hear this loud headphones and all that sort of rubbish. It does sound great. There's so many layers on here. It sounds wonderful. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, what a stand-up track for me was L.A., which I didn't think the, rep, the repetition, repetition, repetition hadn't necessarily been my, my favorite sort of trope throughout the, the things. I generally, I like a tune. I like a bridge. I like a chorus. But that really sort of worked for me, uh, particularly the guitar in there as well. Um, do we still have two drummers? Is that a constant thing throughout?
1: I think it's only one now, actually. Um, yeah, Carl on his own on this one. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think I think I think Paul had left to do his A levels. I mean, he was very young when <laughs> he joined
3: the band. Didn't Paul and Steve leave during Steve? the tour of Wonderful and Frightening Wild Dog? Because
1: um, well, Steve left for paternity leave, so he's me. not actually on this album, is he?
3: No, no, he is. He he plays
1: Just on everything. it, but he didn't write the songs.
0: Or, write the, the songs, but, yeah.
1: Because yeah. I I love the story that um, so they brought in. What was the name of the guy they they brought in? Simon him, Rogers. Simon Rogers, and they wrote uh, "Spoke Victorian Child," and then when Steve Ganley came back and had to learn how to play it, he, he felt like he was being nudged out of the band because it had all these complicated time signatures. <laughs> and he thought he thought done, he's done it on purpose.
0: He was classically trained, Simon yeah, Rogers. Yeah, bizarre in itself. Okay, um, so, so okay, so we're down to one drummer. Um, quick question, Fliss, you you are a drummer. I mean, and we've listened to a lot of albums. Where there's two drummers working together, uh, and now there's one. What do you think the difference is to suddenly be the drummer that's got everything, whereas you were sharing something was sort of sharing the limelight like before?
3: I think it it just came in waves, didn't it? Because he was at the start, and then there was two, and then it was one is probably. I mean, it's really difficult to play with another drummer. I've really? done it once, once before. It's really fucking hard and uh they did such an incredible job though um as a two probably room to express yourself a bit more when it's just yourself um it's i don't know what it would have been like but it, you is, know is it would have taken over.
1: like if you play yeah. it, if you two drummers do you start competing with each other
3: i well i've only done it once and i was in awe of the drummer so i was yeah. definitely not trying to compete well, um this, this was but with, yeah like, I, I
2: imagine huh was that with clump chris Connolly?
3: that was with um the guitar band yeah with chris oh, yeah right. yeah who, who also is, who
2: also played in blue Orchid, so there's a fall connection.
3: there is indeed yeah and um yeah it is well you kind of have to let one person express themselves while you're... But I never felt that they did that in the fall, actually. I felt that like they both were kind of expressive, and that really worked. I think this album is really quite blunt, but punchy, um, doesn't lack any power. It's quite rock and rolly, actually, mm-hmm. you think? I thought. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, this is the one I often claim as being my favourite. But I think it's just for convenience. You know, you have to have one you can say as your favourite. And I just, yeah, this nation's sure. it. it. seems to sort of I mean, cover work. all the things I like about the fall. Yeah, yeah. paintwork. It's got lots of songs on it. That oh, Paintwork is really such a good
3: song.
1: And the one I find is sort of really uh, very typical of kind of Mark e. Smith's self-sabotage. You've got that beautiful last song on the album, which I feel could have been a massive 80s hit, but he called it, was it Two Encroachment? Garbles, yeah. Garbles. Right? It's, so he sabotaged his own beautiful song with a stupid name.
0: <laughs> I think those the lyrics are from something as well, but right. I can't remember. Right yeah, every day, day you have to die. Song. Directly. Every tape. day you have to cry song.
1: Yeah, I love
3: that. Yeah, it's
0: good. Do, do you think, I mean, I, I know that was a throwaway comment, but do you think that Mark wanted fame? Did, I mean, because a lot of bands, they, they sort of, they, they want to be big and famous. Do you think Mark Smith wanted to be successful and to be able to be in a band, but you think he wanted the fame that came with it. Um John Henderson, over to you. It's interesting because we we mentioned uh
2: Susanna's sister who designed the cover for Grotesque. And I've had a lot of conversations with Martin Brahma about these sorts of things because I was a big Fall fan and uh and he's usually happy to talk about it. And the way that he tells it was Mark was a younger brother uh of two sisters. And as such, he was like the little, you know, little Lord Fontreloy around the Smith household. And he was never told no. He was never told. Everything he did was praise to the sky. His sisters, who were, I guess, a bit older, uh, doted on him. And I think that that carried on through the fall. I think he just always thought, I'm a big, kind of a big deal. And um, he could be a really lovely guy when you talk to him. But before you were talking about his personality, he uh, could be you know, a bit of an ass. And- that and that was certainly who he was as well um, I don't think he wanted to be a star in as much as he wanted to be a person who could be on the front page of a music paper talking about how all the stars were horrible except him yeah
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay that, that's, probably a good, that's probably a good time to, to skip forward one year to bend sinister uh, 1986 uh, Jonathan Fisher um, what was the progression musically between these two albums? I mean, this is obviously still a period, right? And this is a more poppy period, a more accessible period. Yeah, I'm not. I don't know whether there's much progression musically. I guess it. it it's that one I said in the in my bit of the pod before. It's like mastered from tape. So I guess yeah. it doesn't. The production. It's is a great story great there, um, because yeah. It, it's not all it could have been, I think, production-wise. And maybe the songs, that I think I said this as well, so I'm repeating this one. It doesn't feel quite as memorable, but I've always really liked it, this one. Uh, Mr. Pharmacist and All, are sort of, um, which is always just sort of, is their most played song live, I think, from this point on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They always sure. play Mr. Pharmacist every show. And it's the one even,
1: quite often, like, you know, non-Fall fans, if they know one song by the Fall, they're oh yeah, Mr. Pharmacist. yeah. That seems oh, to be yes. the one they know. Mm. Yeah.
0: That, no, that wasn't one of mine. I mean, like, really? I okay. Now, obviously, the, um, the cover of Victoria by the Kinks, as well as Totally Wired, I guess, were the two that I knew without knowing before. Right. Um, so, um, Benson, so you, it's, it's, it's. So, John um, Fisher, so you think it's not much of a progression? It's less. Um, memorable, I say the previous Station Saving Grace, and obviously there's the it's, it's maybe overly produced, no, <laughs> underly produced. Yeah, I don't know, somethingly produced. It's just not quite as good <laughs> is it um, production. You told that story in your intro, right, Jonathan?
1: Basically, you know they had John Leckie as the producer, and this is a guy who's worked with the Beatles and uh, countless legacy acts. And then you've got Marquis e Smith saying, "Well, I want to master it from
0: this C 90 <laughs> Was that your Manchester accent? Yeah, sorry. Brown, good. <laughs> <laughs> Better than mine, to be fair. S- similar to my
1: similar to my German accent.
3: Oh, and oh. hadn't John Lucky been on some kind of like um, meditation thing before it or doing? A, or was, a, this before, he, was this before Was this before Wonderful, frightening world? I can't remember, but.
2: Yeah, He, he was, Fliss. I can't remember what it was. I want to say it was one of those like Rajneesh kind of things. Yeah, okay. he
3: was like super chilled out. And yeah, he super, super chilled out.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well, that was money wasted.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so, I mean, let's spend a little bit more time on the Friends experiment. Then. Oh, sorry, John. Your hands I, up. I just wanted to say a
2: couple of things. The first of which is, we were talking about goth albums. To me, Ben mm. uh, Sinister is the goth album by yes. the fall. Oh, so goth. I might be a little influenced by the cover, which was very goth, but it sounded like a goth record. And the other thing I wanted to say, uh, just relating to nothing, aside from the fact that around the Beggar's Banquet era, they started doing a lot of covers. Uh, Mr. Pharmacist was a cover by a, an American garage band. They did uh, Victoria by the Kinks. They did, uh, what's the one? Posting um, My Hands. Pinball Machine coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, pinball Machine. And um, Oh, the the music or the, Was that? Oh, and they okay. did. Uh, they did "Rolling Danny" as a, a B-side mm-hmm. to a single by I think, which I think it was a Gene Vincent song. And yeah. to me, I just want to mention this. This I think is the point where the Falls cover versions were far better than their originals. From here on out,
1: from here on out, <laughs> the bold, well, statement. That is a bold statement. I mean, I mean, "Ghost in My House" was my earliest sort of contemporaneous awareness of the Fall. I vaguely remember that being in the charts. No, yeah. but I, just, you know, that's not, I just remember it being a thing and being vaguely interested in it without investigating further but yeah somebody I was looking back at the comments on the, in the uh, Facebook group when we, when we listened to this uh, last time somebody described it as surf goth
0: <laughs>
1: kind of like, <laughs>
3: kind
1: of like. <laughs> also just because the idea of surf and goth are like almost like polar opposites
3: didn't
0: like that <laughs> they do um, a, a day in a life as well don't they at this point um, Sergeant yeah. Pepper Father or something. Yeah, data right. life. That's crazy,
3: isn't it? They
2: did a lot. Then they did. Uh, oh, what's that one? Going to Spain, and they did. Um,
1: oh,
3: Lost in the, that's 90s, music,
1: yeah. the Sister Sledge song. Uh uh-huh.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: We're getting ahead of ourselves. Though. That's that's sort of early yeah. to mid nineties. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's all right. Um, okay, so if now is the period where all their their, their cover versions are better than their original stuff, um, the next Allegedly. album, well. For me, moving into the Friends experiment, which is, what, skipping maybe two more years, out of all the albums I've listened to so far, as a full newbie, if I had to say to someone, this is the most accessible fall album, I'd probably hand them the Friends experiment. Mm-hmm. For me, it seemed to be very, very uh, accessible and sort of the least fall album I'd heard so far, despite still being a fall album. if that make sense? Or am I just going crazy? I'm often going no, no. crazy. No, that makes, that makes sense, yeah. It's, it's
3: definitely fair. the most accessible, I think. But I still think it
0: is a mixed bag. Yeah,
1: it's still sorry. very much a fall album.
0: <laughs> yeah. well, I think they're all fallout. I mean, it's not like there's an acid jazz album that they, they sort of released. But, I mean, okay, granted, we've got, what, nine minutes of Brenna Um But this is also the one with Victoria on, right? Yes. The single was around then. It yes. Was, no, the yes. single's on Friends Experiment. Is it on it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, no, this for me was was the one. I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I could, I could, I could happily get into this if I, as a total newbie. Um, John Fisher, um, where does this stand for you? I really like this one, but I know it's a lot of people really don't like this one. And I think maybe it's that more pop aspect to it, mm-hmm. a bit more, and that it's the cover as well, isn't it, with the, the band cover? I think yeah. people see this as like the the death of the fall almost this album it's especially great. after ben sinister it's too easy. Is like the
1: second generation photocopy
0: yeah indeed <laughs> indeed and then you've got something
1: with this sort of soft focus 1980s band photo on the front yeah which it, um... absolutely
0: but you know there's loads of things i really like on this album Um, carrier bag man was always a favorite when i was a kid i loved that one um, was this around right about the time of hit the north uh, yeah, well, no, yeah. it must be a little was, bit later. After then. this, I
1: think. Because that's not actually on any of the albums, is it? I yeah, think it's,
0: it's
1: maybe being Curious Orange and Shift
0: Work, maybe? I think I think that's the thing, and we've touched on it uh, in a previous pod. Going and revisiting stuff during the streaming age, um, it's very hard. You have to go out of your way to find out what the original album track list was, because mm. we assume. We, we mentioned it earlier, we assumed that these songs were, oh, well, yeah, this, is a, this was on the album, and then you realize that the album was only 10 songs rather than 15, and none of the yeah, singles yeah. were on it.
3: Especially <laughs> on Spotify, like, yeah. there's, yeah. It's been, but it's also, really like, big in big a, you know, 2000, I kind of
0: started
1: fleshing out my full collection with CDs, and all the CDs have a shit tonne of bonus stuff on it, you know, which with the full does usually include, include some great singles, but will also include, like, loads of kind of dross as well. I don't know, weird live recordings and things.
0: Um okay, so at this point, like I mean, to me this sounds like a band that are moving into accidentally a mainstream, I guess. Um John Henderson and um, what was happening with them success wise at this point? Were they were they on an upward trajectory or was were they continuing still as a fans band?
2: Um actually I think I think that their upward trajectory kind of ended with Ben Sinister I'm speaking strictly in, in terms of the success they were having not my own feelings on it. Uh, it was, it was downhill from there on out until they uh, signed with phonogram um, to me. I'm one of those people that thinks uh, friends experiment and uh, curious orange are just the worst fall records up until the point where I quit listening to them altogether. So yeah, that's my feeling, but I think the albums lacked really good songs. They had really good riffs, and they were bouncing. They were very pop on a superficial level. But The Fall weren't the kind of band that could really become pop stars. I mean, Marky Smith just wasn't that sort of guy. And I think here's where they pushed it a little too far. People liked the records, and I can appreciate that. But it was going to alienate a lot of their old fans, which it certainly did. And at this point, they were losing fans from Wonderful and Frightening World, um, This Saving Saving Grace, and uh Ben Sinister they, these records didn't do as well and they ended up getting dropped because of that
0: um wasn't um I, 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 when I was reading for this was, I thought this was the first one that hit the that broke the UK top 20 because of Victoria I thought this was the one that got through
2: it's, well I mean to put that in perspective it's a later album but Extricate by the Fall was actually their their biggest chart album I believe but nowadays it's not really even in the top 15 sellers so they had a lot of attention but what happened was every fall fan would go out and buy it in the first week and then it would evaporate really quickly so you can't go by chart positions um the, the earlier ones sold not as well initially but they sold and they sold and they sold and they sold and now something like um uh slates for, well not slates but uh what's the next one hex induction hour is a really big selling record for them. But at the time, you wouldn't have known it.
0: Okay, yeah, that, that, that totally makes sense. Um, has anybody else got anything else to say about the Friends experiment before we move on? The thing I wanted
1: to add was uh, there's a kind of thing that uh, Marky e. Smith started doing around, probably started around This Nation Saving Grace, but these kind of like quite wistful, almost confessional songs that are at odds with his personality and therefore seem that bit more powerful for it. And I, I love the title track of, friends experiment. Hopefully my friends don't amount to one hand. I think it's a beautiful song. And, um, you know, there's a lot of songs that he does like that that seem to be kind of at odds with the, the persona of Marky e. Smith and are stronger for it.
0: I think you touched on something there as well. And it's a, I think it's a question worth looking at. I mean, was Marky e. Smith singing as a persona of Marky e. Smith? Was it an exaggerated performance? Per- version he, of himself. Later. He always
3: played characters. And that's what he claims, yeah. Big yeah. character, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how he can get out of some of the things he says, I'm
1: sure. <laughs> yeah. is, is it helpful to of course? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I suppose it goes back to like a previous poem when we looked at Bowie and how all the different periods of Bowie were essentially Bowie, but just yeah. exaggerated forms of what Bowie was doing at the time. You know, the thin white duke period was just, you know, it was But Bowie He's, of, he's often
1: seen about himself as well. I mean, he's like carrier bag man. I mean, you can't be singing about anyone but Marky Smith in that song.
0: He is the <laughs> Carrier Bag Man.
3: I've seen a lot of Carrier Bag Mans <laughs> at gigs.
0: There's <laughs> a few now. <laughs> wait, wait, what, wait. What is a Carrier Bag Man?
3: It's, uh, I've actually seen Marky's... I've actually... A carry Bag Man, I'm assuming, is... A man that <laughs> carries
1: um, <laughs> carry a carrier ba- bag.
3: Doesn't <laughs> <laughs> want to say something. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but um, actually, one of the gigs we played with before, um, we played with them in Luton and it was during the later stages of the fall. And Marky Smith comes on stage with a carrier bag full of money, but it was only half full of their fee because he demanded that he'd got half the fee in cash before they went on stage. And I'm assuming they were going for like 10 grand at the time, which is kind of crazy considering Mm. the performance and also the crowds weren't actually that big to, I don't know how that was affordable. Anyway, so he came on stage. I was backstage, saw him coming out of his car with his carry bag full of probably five grand. He then, during the set, obviously left the stage to say, I need the, the, the rest of the money because we're now going to finish the set and then I'm out, I'm out of it. <laughs> <laughs> he came on with, you know, a bigger bag of money and then left. Yeah. So, so that he is. Where, he uh, is bag man So that
1: thing where Marky Smith always walked off the stage in middle in the middle of gigs and left the band on their own for a bit. Was he just arguing with the venue? Well, not all the
3: time. <laughs> but I've se- yeah, I've seen him do that a few times. Oh, me too. Yeah. Me too. Lots of times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um,
0: this seems like a weird version of the Aretha Franklin uh, having a, her purse on the stage with the money in. Yes, um, Mark is story. turning it with a plastic with a plastic bag, doing <laughs> doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's
1: he's got a lot in common with Aretha
0: Franklin, I think. <laughs> that, that is what my notes say. Um, most albums got yeah, very Aretha right right now. Um, okay, so um, we've one you'd, 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 you'd
1: want to hear Aretha Franklin's Surf Goff album, though, wouldn't you?
3: Hell yeah. <laughs>
0: Now I am curious. But that is an accidental segue into I Am Curious Orange. So I'm going to go with it. Nice. <laughs> uh, so, Jonathan, I'm going to go straight back over to you. Um, this is your last album that, that you talked through on the introductions. Um, and so, end of the 80s. Where do the end of the 80s leave us with the four? Alley. One word for you. Obviously. It's bound. To, it's, it was always going to end, wasn't it? Ballet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as soon as you hear live at the Witch Trials, you're thinking ten years from now this band's going to do a ballet.
0: So it's a ballet with um, <laughs> Michael Clark, who's who's done various bits with The Fall before this, and um, this was um, yeah, a yeah performance they did throughout that year, of which there is there are no um, video entire performances of the video. There's little bits you can see, which um, is. It's crazy, isn't it? You can't see the whole. I am curious, Orange. Yeah, it's like it never happened. It is. you would never have that now. It's it's a brilliant thing in a way. It's very ephemeral. It just happened then. That's it. You don't see it. No one yeah. sees it. So, I mean, at, at this at this period, what eighty eight? I would say the UK alternative scene was actually getting quite not mainstream, but you know, obviously there were a lot of bands like the Smiths, etc., who were big. You know? And so it, w- it was less underground, and surely this would have been a time for them to ride on that wave rather than going off and making some weird ephemeral ballet stuff. <laughs> You'd think, but <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> not going to happen. Um, John, what was the UK music scene like at the moment? Was it a good fit for them, or were they just going off in, in, in different directions?
2: yeah I think at at this point, really the beggars banquet era was their attempt to really become a bigger band but also to make a much bigger move in america uh All these records came out in the states you know the first time an entire string of them had had been released in america and um I just think it was a really weird time uh shortly after this, Mark would complain to friends that you know he didn't know why he was doing this anymore, and he wished he could just start something else and 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 do it under a new name, but people would never let him. Uh, I kind of get the feeling he was really depressed. And I think that, I don't know if the ballet idea was sort of Ricks's, uh innovation or, you know, I mean, aside from Michael Clark. but I mean, I don't know how that how the band worked it. It doesn't seem like something he would do. And uh, to me, this is a pretty, in a way, a bleak record. So I, I don't really know. Um, they really... They really seemed kind of lost, and which makes the, the next chapter after *Summon Alive* really amazing. they won't spoil that for anybody. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, this record didn't do very well. And, and the next record, by all accounts, was a contractual obligation record where they just kind of put
3: some stuff together and put it out there.
0: The contractual obligation album, half live, half studio. Just like John says, it's kind of bits thrown together. Um, Deadbeat Descendant was from um, the stage show Curious Orange, and I was always amazed that that didn't make it on there because it's I love Deadbeat Descendant. I think it's a re- it was a really good single, mm, a good tune, really yeah. good tune, great riff. Those three notes. I think I mentioned it. Really was the first thing I learned to play on the guitar. Deadbeat Descendant. You only need one string and three notes. It's, it's brilliant. It is everyone should learn to play that as their first guitar song. Um, okay, so. so- so we've gone through, well, pretty much a, a decade or so of the fall. As a brief aside, how many peel sessions had they done by this point? Do they did seem 12. to be up peel sessions. I think it's 12. But, 12 in total 12. or 12 up to this point? Up point, yeah, no, up to this point. It's like Squid Lord was um, number 12, and that was the Squid Law became on Seminal Lives, so yeah, 12. Okay, so this is probably a good time to wrap up the second episode of our journey through the fall. Um, So if you're if you're listening to this at home, you're probably somewhere in I don't know mid March. You're with us till April at least. Um, Thank you ever so much for your time and your contributions, John Henderson. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it too. Um, Fliss, it's been Great, great, great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Jay Fisher, great to have you back. Yeah, no, yeah that's great fun. Thank you. Uh, and Nick? I just want to say, though, it's
1: like we've got a bunch of different people coming in to talk through the 90s fall, but it'd be kind of nice just to get everyone back and, like, by the time we get to New Facts Emerge, just to have, like, I don't know, 20 people all in this uh, call just pitching mm-hmm. in and talking about the fall. Cause, uh, you know, it's like it feels like you're just doing a little bit of the journey and there's so much more still to come.
0: But like they said that at some point everybody has been in the fall at some point will everybody have been on our full podcast
1: that's that's the aim that's the aim although hopefully we won't part on acrimonious terms
0: <laughs> yeah I, I thought we were gonna have a fake fight I no i just remembered that too john fliss you let us where's
1: the fight <laughs> can, we, oh, can we do a fight no. now and edit it edit it into somewhere <laughs> earlier no
2: it's it's fliss is too nice to pick a fight with.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, you yeah. promised us fights <laughs> they they did promise us fights dear listener um and sadly we didn't get it but yes join us next time as we move into the 90s uh with uh different contributors um some who you have heard before and some who you haven't and we'll see you next time bye, bye. adios
1: I would have happily kept going for another hour. Thankfully, for those of you with shorter attention spans, we didn't. But seriously, is six episodes really enough to do justice to the Falls' mighty discography? Maybe we should have made it 32 episodes. Or 64, an episode for each side. Anyway, allow me to thank everybody who made this episode happen. You were listening to Fliss Kitson of The Nightingales, John Henderson of Tiny Global Productions, and Jonathan Fisher composer of the Temporary Fandom's theme tune. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you to my indefatigable co-host Ewan for stopping us from dwelling too long on any one album and for stitching the resulting clamour together. Join us again next time when we creep into the 90s. We've got a new cohort of guests, and as always, loads more records to listen to and talk about. I'm Nick Hilditch, and I got everything I want, except for money.